Hello, and welcome to the Planetary Regeneration Podcast. I'm your host, Gregory Landway. All right. Um, wow, I'm super, super stoked about this episode of the Planetary Regeneration Podcast. I have my friends Daniel Schmachtenberger and Jason Snyder to dig into a conversation about um, the edges and potential of localism, uh, global coordination, um, failures, challenges, and opportunities, and super grateful for both of your time uh, this this afternoon, this evening, and yeah, just stoked to dive in. Maybe I'll I'll just do a quick introduction for each of you. I, I'm pretty sure that most guests, uh, listeners, that is, know both of you, but um, I'll start with Daniel. So Daniel Schmachtenberger is um, I think really one of the more rigorous and interesting thinkers amongst a particular emerging field of thought that is exploring, um, I don't know, I've heard this sort of broadly, this loose confederation of people referred to as Game B a little bit, although in some ways, Daniel, I don't totally you know, put you in that category, but at least game be adjacent and provocative and and sort of like leading a lot of those conversations. And uh, Jason, you're one of the um, co-conveners and co-creators of the Doomer Optimism Movement and podcast. And um, I think this is sort of a meeting of different but similar ways of thinking about the meta crisis and maybe in some way the meta opportunity or potential for we humans and how to inhabit the earth in a better way. So um, with that, I'd love it. Maybe uh, pass it over to you, Daniel, just to say hello and maybe, you know, anything you want to just, you know, frame out or um, say hello to the audience and then Jason, get your voice in there. And then I think after we do a quick round, let's jump into the the, the meat of the conversation here together. I'll, I'll let you take it from here, Daniel. Well, thank you for having me. It's really good to be here. Gregory, I remember you and I were talking about this when we met at a conference uh, some number of months ago, and we're talking about potential downsides to uh, exclusively localist focus. And so I look forward to getting into that content. But I have always appreciated your work that is looking at how to have tech in service of nature rather than the idea that a high nature world means a low tech world or a high tech world is uh, exploitative of nature because if some subset of the population tries a lower tech world and the other doesn't, the ones trying a lower tech world simply can't influence the ones that have a higher tech world all that much because the tech ends up equaling power. So how do we get tech in service of ecology and foundational humanity, I think is critically important in the regenerative focus. And um, I uh, am just meeting Jason, but um, you know, since I work on catastrophic risk, the, the Doomer optimism theme is good because we kind of, our approach is to take all of the catastrophic risks collectively as the design constraints for what humanity has to coordinate to make it through and to look at only those models of civilization that make it through all the catastrophic risks as viable, which is definitely taking a well-informed by the doom approach and then looking at how to thread that needle as the optimist approach or what we kind of call post-cynical optimism sometimes. So looking forward to seeing where we go. Great. Well, hello. Pleasure to be here. I've known Gregory for a little while, and I'd like to say that we're friends, and sometimes we argue about things, but that's good. And Daniel, uh, I've followed your work on podcasts for a few years, and I feel like it's been very useful for me to help frame my thinking, so it's an honor to be in conversation with both of you. Uh, I guess here I'm representing 
the Doomer Optimism podcast in world, even if it's not a monolithic thing. So I don't know <laughs> to the degree that I can represent it. Happy to be here. Yeah, and thanks for being here, Jason. And and I forgot to mention, I think we're going to be co-releasing this uh, on the Doomer Optimism feed and the Planetary Regeneration feed. And uh, so I'm pretty excited about that cross-pollination. So, you know, just to start out, Daniel, I, I love the framing of high-tech, high-nature, uh, low-tech, high-nature, low-nature, high-tech, <laughs> This this sort of quadrant framework, probably you could sort of think of it with, um, you know, tech and nature on opposing sides and like what happens when you're strategically oriented in those different ways. So do you want to just um, take a brief moment to expand on that as a framework for thinking about strategies in the 21st century for people who are kind of bumping up against the meta crisis, the meaning crisis, and thinking about vocations and life ways, and what the hell do we all do <laughs> as individuals or as communities? Yeah, sure. Um, I think if you put it on a two by two grid like that, high and low nature, high and low tech, from where we are, and with the implicit coordination dynamics that have to be dealt with, I think the way you framed it, the high technology, high nature and more specifically, technology in service of the regeneration of nature and our ability to continue to engage with it, uh, be part of it, is the only quadrant that can forward. The low nature high tech is the one we're on, right? We just use our technology to nature into trash faster than either side of that open loop can regenerate trash and pollution. And if you think about humans arising out of nature, building tech, using the tech to compete with other humans to convert nature into commodities, pollution, and waste faster, that is obviously us using our exponentially increasing capability to destroy the substrate that we depend upon. I'm not thinking of nature as a substrate as a good way of thinking about it because it leads to this kind of extract way of being. People thinking about nature as intrinsically meaningful, beautiful, sacred, and that our life should be in relationship to and in service to it is much better. But even from just a kind of human utilitarian view, insofar as we emerge out of, and it is our substrate, any system that debases the substrate it depends on is in the process of self-terminating. So the increasing tech that way, right? A linear materials economy that is looking at nature as natural resources to be extracted and the other side of that after they're used for a short period of time <clears throat> is uh, pollution and waste. And we're extracting them faster than they can replenish. So we get depletion and all the planetary boundaries on the depletion side, loss of species, loss of soil, loss of hydrocarbons, phosphorus, blah, blah, blah. Then turning them into waste and pollution on the other side faster than they can be processed. Climate change, chemical planetary boundaries, uh, mining wastes, etc., all the planetary boundaries come from high tech, you know, with our financial system having embedded growth obligations and a linear materials economy being what coordinates how that tech works. And so to not cross all the planetary boundaries, we have to address that. If you tried to say, well, what about the low tech ones? Low tech, low nature is like the image of some kind of post-apocalyptic scorched earth. There's a few humans left on a shitty biosphere in a caveman-like life. High nature, low tech 
might seem like a nice option, except it's not enactable, right? This is where we were historically. But if, unless the entire world agrees to all decrease its tech, then whoever doesn't, whether they have more military tech or more extraction tech, whatever, they're going to grow their populations faster, win in warfares, have more geopolitical influence, all those other things. And so because whoever is seeking to do something that is in service to nature that doesn't cross planetary boundaries has to influence everyone else because it's not like people in some area can solve a planetary boundary by themselves and yet they're all affected by the planetary boundary. If if we want to avoid breaking the hydrological pump of the Amazon or having fluorinated surfactants everywhere kill everything or species extinction, we have to change what China does and what India does and what Europe does and what the US do which means you've got to have some, a model that either <laughs> that they're going to adopt and which means that whatever you're doing has to actually be in, able to influence. And uh, so realizing that there isn't a king of everything that can say, let's degrowth and lower tech, then you don't want some groups opting to do a thing that isn't enough to change the planetary reality and definitely can't influence the rest of the scenario. So how do you use the top tools of coordination and technology in a way that regenerates rather than depletes and that has the capacity to influence the rest of the world to adopt them in time seems to me the only way forward. Uh, word <laughs> that totally mimics my analysis and view. There's a whole bundle of questions there that I'm really excited to dig into with both of you. I think I kind of want to weave your voice in here, Jason, just, you know, what emerges for you when you hear this sort of, you know, kind of, I think Daniel's staking out a pretty clear perspective, which I basically agree with that, you know, if you think about this hard, you, you sort of realistically, we have to be acting in the high tech, high nature quadrant. I think yeah, I like that framing. It matches my logical perspective. And I know that it, that's not going to match a lot of people's perspective in the Doomer Optimism community who are going to be thinking maybe there are ways to move forward with a low-tech, high-nature existence or transformation. So I'm just curious, you know, what are your thoughts and questions um, after listening to Daniel? Yeah, okay. Well, I guess first, I would want to question what kind of high tech. Uh, I think most of us enjoy the internet, and we're often reflective that we do enjoy the internet um, and what it enables, even though we're kind of Luddite adjacent. Uh, and so what does that mean? Uh, I, I would also want to kind of question you guys on how you would have high tech without sacrifice zones all of the mining of say the copper that would go into all of the renewable energy technologies and the infrastructure for digital technologies in general what so the i guess for me the question isn't so much high tech versus low tech but what is the appropriate technology um and then bring in your challenge Daniel, with the with the multipolar traps, you know, I I don't think I can argue with you. I I I I think your logic is correct. One 
lens that I often use is I, I happen to to think that in many ways collapse is happening uh, or is going to be happening faster, both because of planetary boundaries, but also because of energy throughput, uh, just the amount of available dense energy, uh, as well as minerals and materials. Uh, and so we cannot continue this embedded growth obligation on a global scale. We cannot continue extracting materials in a literally uh, linear economy and you know uh, depositing them as waste in various parts of the world. And so I don't think I disagree with you guys, but I, I think this conversation would be good to kind of flesh out what would high tech mean in a world of planetary limits? Where are the sacrifice zones going to be? Are we going to recycle all of these technologies? Where are we going to get the energy to do that? Um, these are the kinds of questions that I'm inter interested in. You know, of course, if we can use technology to regenerate the earth, which is, I think, what you're focused on, Gregory, that sounds, that sounds great, you know, but can we also live meaningful lives in our relationships to technology in a kind of Illichian sense? Uh, that would be good too, right? So maybe we're in a high-tech world, but uh, we, you know, our personal kind of community aesthetics are more like cottagecore solar punk. Um, and so what, what does that look like? So, yeah, I think if we can explore these things, that would be good. There's so many things um, embedded in what was just discussed. I think where I'll start is that we're already in collapse and that maybe some people are thinking about living in a, a post-collapse environment. I think I'd like to make some distinctions between things like post-growth and post-collapse. I don't know if anyone here uh, is familiar with Nate Hagen's work. I'm imagining they are based on uh, something I just um, heard you say, Jason, but Nate and I just did this whole bin not break series on what it would take to get to a sustainable global materials economy without radical collapse. But yeah, um, I, just, I just want to note that I, I, I do follow him closely and I, I did listen to that series, but go ahead. So if we're, if we're thinking about the various types of collapse scenarios, various types of catastrophic risk scenarios, I would like to decrease anyone's faith that their off-grid world makes it through. And this is where the Doomer part comes as a good preface to where, where optimism might live. So if we're talking about climate change and other environmental refugees at the scale that we're probably forecasting at UN saying 300 million to maybe a billion in the next 10 plus years. And that after a few million Syrian refugees, nobody wants to take refugees anymore. And that we're not talking about like ocean level rise or venusification to cause this, just extreme weather events hitting high population areas. And that, how does that work? How does that play out? Is that just really a bummer for a lot of people in poor parts of the world who have very shitty lives in refugee camps? No, not in most of the scenarios. I mean, that itself would be gruesome. But we see the heat waves that hit India or Bangladesh or Pakistan or Iran or whatever as a issue over there. Because if you have tens of millions of people that get displaced because they don't have enough groundwater and stored food to make it through a crop loss from a heat failure... So now we're looking at migration of the people 
And without enough resources and nowhere to take them, we start to get resource wars. But you're looking at that happening on, say, in India, where it probably cleaves along Muslim Hindu lines, which maybe turns into a new nuclear conflict between India and Pakistan, or it happens in Iran, and you similarly have adjacent country nuclear conflict zones, or you hit major supply lines of the world where everybody's supply depends upon six continent dynamics. And that the solution to avoiding World War III we instituted after World War II involved exponential growth of the economic system, which involved exponential extraction so that we, the major superpowers didn't have to take each other's stuff to keep growing. And that as soon as you start to go post-growth, you actually remove the basis of the not World War, World War III solution. You don't get the situation where these impending catastrophes are a problem over there that if I have a pretty good off-grid place in Montana or whatever, I for sure make it through. Also, you guys probably saw the article on PFOS that was published a couple months ago showing that uh, fluorinated surfactants and rainwater globally already pass planetary boundaries as defined by EPA and EU um, Health Regulatory Commission. But what we're seeing there is in rainwater and in snowfall all around the world, including in the places people are off grid, you have higher than allowed healthful standards of chemicals that don't ever break down that are endocrine disruptors and carcinogens and like that, that don't just affect the humans, but also affect the soil microbes and nature and everything else in the area. So the idea that I can somehow separate myself from humanity because it's on this clusterfuck train, I'm going to go and be fine with my family. From the point of view of the nuclear war, the breakdowns in the internet and supply chains I'm depending upon, to literally the quality of the rainwater from the atmosphere I'm in. We are too interconnected to think that way. So the optimist approaches for me involve actually thinking through how to transition globally for everybody. And, you know, that that strategy is the low money version of the rich person's doom, doomsday bunker, right? Which is the elites see, uh, some set of the elites see high probability of breakdown of Pax Americana and like fucked world situation. So they have a private jet with a tank full of fuel and a piloting for one of their multiple doomsday bunker scenarios where they can make it through while everybody else is fucked. And I want to radically decrease their confidence in that strategy. I also want to decrease the key nation state strategy that they can make it through a large scale war and win. But I want to decrease the low-cost version of it, too. I mean, now, of course, I think people having a certain degree of local resilience is smart, not insofar as it means forgetting the way the local is embedded in the larger contexts and that we are not just responsible to ourselves, our family, and our locality, but also to the world that we're contextualized in. So I have a lot of other things to say about the where are the um, sacrifice zones and what level of high tech does it take for the chip manufacturing to be able to have the internet that you want and satellite launches and everything. But I'll just start with that part on um, the problem of the escape route ideology. Love it, Jason. I'm, you know, I'm going to kind of turn it over to you for this section of dialogue. Like just hear your responses there. <clears throat> yeah. I, I don't personally resonate much with the escape route ideology, but I tend to think that there's an interesting congruence between that and what, what I think 
we need to transition more to is a more kind of distributed living systems, more uh, localized living systems, at least with more emphasis on subsidiarity or or multi-scale localism, uh, acknowledging that many things do occur at, say, a global scale. You know, I'm interested in kind of building up bioregional organization. And so, and I just noticed that so many of us, at least in the West, are very unresilient, right? And so uh, we don't know how to do things with our hands anymore. We don't know how to fix things. We don't know how to grow food. Uh, We're completely dependent on global supply chains. And so for me, the more people get inspired to become locally resilient, the better off the larger system is going to be in general. And so while I don't think that anybody can hide out in a bunker uh, and expect to, to do well in the long term, I agree with you wanting to decrease confidence in that. But, it, but, but I think that moving in that direction, localizing as much as possible, uh, is generally a good thing to do and will have good larger system effects. Greg, this now gets us to the original place you wanted to go in the conversation. Should we go there? Yeah, let's go there. I, I'm I'm sort of keeping track of a few things that I want to observe and interject, but I, I think let's just keep this flow. It's it's going perfectly. I think in general, the idea of increasing local resilience, so insofar as there are inevitable failures anywhere, they don't create cascading failures everywhere. Um, one of the things we saw during COVID was when the shutdowns of travel happened to prevent movement of a virus, it also meant prevent movement in supply chains. And one of the things that meant was the movement of pesticides. So we got locusts eating all the crops in parts of Northern Africa and the Middle East and the preventing the movement of NPK. And so all the, fer- all the places that depended upon that kind of fertilizer. So I think obviously those are bad agricultural technologies anyways, um, factoring all the externalities, but, uh, yeah, I don't think we want a situation where you have a problem in one part of the world and we get that much cascading failure. I think it's also true, as someone was mentioning earlier, thinking about not just the meta crisis of the catastrophic risk, but the meaning crisis. I don't think there is such a thing as a meaning crisis if people are connected in person in high intimacy connections to people around them, which obviously is the evolutionary environment of humans in a kind of tribal world. So more connection to the earth, more connection to the physical environment we're in, more connection to the humans around us, and more resilience to cascading failures. All that seems pretty nice. The other thing that we need to factor with that is it ends up being inevitable that people in two different regions interact sometimes in some ways. This has been true since the earliest humans. Having positive sum interactions has kind of always been the way to avoid negative sum interaction. So if we're seeing all the exiting into competition over resource limits generally, and some kind of warfare with them ends up being an appropriate strategy, if they're producing slightly different things than we are and we get to go into trade or exchange with them, then that positive sum interaction is more desirable. So that's like an ancient technology, right? The trading post and et cetera. And that is not purely localism. 
because once you get things that are valuable from another area and they start to differentiate their capacity to make those better based on their locality, specialty, whatever, you do start to get dependence. The most recent instantiation of that in a formal way, or one of them, was after World War II and the desire to never have another world war because you can't have a world war in a post-nuclear world and ensure that anybody actually comes out of it. The globalization of the supply chains and the formalization of the financial service enabling all the trade was a part of the solution. The financial system, obviously, as we already mentioned, if you get exponential growth of the global economy, everybody's impulse to have more can be met without having to take each other's stuff. The problem is you're taking nature's stuff and eventually you stop being able to do that, which is what we're hitting now. But the other side of it is when you have these six continent supply chains, if you bomb anybody, you're bombing your own supply chains. Uh, you have a strong incentive not to bomb people somewhere else where you depend upon the stuff they're producing. And insofar as everywhere could produce its own stuff locally, we are less actually interdependent with what the people in the other areas are doing. And so then there, there's this question of, well, do we produce our own food and process our own bio waste, but we don't produce our own computers and biotech and whatever? Well, whatever we don't produce ourselves, we're dependent on and there's fragility, but we also are interdependent bidirectionally and as a result have to figure out how to make things work with each other. And I think one of the, like, there's not enough trust in this global system. The global system is fucked. Let's regress to something smaller than global creates a kind of regressive nationalism and also a regressive tribalism and localism of like, we'll take care of our own. We don't need you. But it is first, it's just incongruent with all the people who still like access to biotechnologies that their community doesn't produce should they end up actually getting in a situation that needs it and they still like computers and things like that. Um, but it also, it just doesn't work, right? Because if the AI apocalypse or the synthetic bio or the movement towards nuclear war is happening anywhere else outside of our community, we're still fucked. And so ultimately... Our technology is big enough to affect the whole world that everybody has to be invested in what everybody else is doing. And so this is a place where localism can be anti-productive, counterproductive, because being forced to stay invested in what everybody else is doing can be important to the scale of solutions. So I do believe that there are things that should occur locally. You get the benefits of less transportation and more freshness and tighter closed loops and the ability to see externalities more as well as resilience. But I also believe there's a lot of things that should not be local because they happen more efficiently with economies of scale and because the interconnectivity of each other is actually, and the interdependence is really important. So that's the things that have to be held in tension. Yeah. Fantastic. Thanks, Daniel. And I think this is very this is, this is the rich part of the conversation. And I, I kind of wanted to weave in a little bit of, of my perspective here, which is, you know, if we're framing this out, I, I really appreciate the clarity of framing the way that, you know, however we talk about it, the neoliberal global order in which globalized trade and a globalized financial system is the antidote to you know, World War Three and, uh, you know, nuclear Armageddon. And I think it's important to understand that that is actually the inspiration of the institutions that have set up the world that we now live in. And it's super clear 
so, so you know okay and and that is at the expense of mother earth of nature of of living systems i think that's a crystal clear analysis and really you know from that analysis my personal perspective is if you shift the financial system such that value becomes um, not just an ecological debit ecological credit balancing system but that we actually start to derive uh, status wealth and acknowledge the the value of living systems of nature um both from a sacred and completely unquantifiable way and like a veneration way an ethical way a moral way an artistic way an aesthetic way as well as a quantified way and and this is sort of like i have a lot of thinking about currencies and money as properly multivalent it should be a wave and a particle it should be sacred and able to be used in transaction but that's a maybe a different conversation for a different day but if we close that loop then what happens i believe what happens is the aesthetic values and the sort of like regenerative efficiency of local people taking action to care for local places and live good local lives that are tending those food forests and caring for those riparian buffers and stewarding those forests becomes financially advantaged without you know like place you know and, and we're using and leveraging technology to achieve that and that's in my mind and this is very it's a pretty simple analysis in a lot of ways but in my mind that's the you know that's the direction that's the sort of regen direction which is to say that's the next step in the evolution of of global institutions is to transform our financial system to place the the health uh, the ecological health of our biosphere and the nested bioregions and watersheds at the center of how we measure financial wealth yeah i think saying we want our currencies to be multivalent and to be particle and wave and to hold um nature in a sacred and artistic way, but also a quantified way. I think at first blush, that sounds right. And of course, the devil is in the details on it, right? So the quantification and then the commensuration of quantified things is pretty deep to the game theoretic challenge and all of the um, entropic process we have. So when we talk about the transformation of what has to be in terms of like our financial system, there are some things, there's a lot of things to talk about. Uh, removing the growth obligation to have to keep up with just compounding interest, let alone all the other things, to force exponential growth of energy services. Obviously, we have to do that because you can't run that exponential curve in the finite biosphere forever. That's humongous because we don't know how to make a global financial system and not World War III any other way. So that's a that's a big deal. Property rights is a huge thing. Who What does it mean to own property? Who owns what um, property? Given that if my access to a resource comes from owning it, which also involves preclude other people's access, and more stored resource gives me more capacity to respond to future eventualities and whatever, then like you don't have, if all revenue gets reinvested, don't have an embedded growth obligation. 
if you have profit and you have extraction of a resource that can give you any other resource, i.e. a currency that has high fungibility, you have a very high theoretic incentive for maximizing that extraction. I'm talking about profit as extraction revenue minus expense. So who owns that surplus and how do we um, couple or decouple access and stewardship are really important questions. But arguably harder than and even deeper than those is fungibility of value. Because if I can turn a tree into lumber and then I can sell the lumber and buy food or buy other commodities or whatever it is, pretty soon it's clear that if I cut down trees faster than I need them and have stores of timber, both because of economies of scale and ease of shipping and whatever, it's more profitable to do that in many contexts. But then I also don't even want to store the lumber because then before I can get a new thing, I have to be involved in sale. I just want to store the high liquidity, high fungibility, high stability global currency. And that if you think about money as a unit of game theoretic power, right, a unit of choice but a unit of optionality. And so it makes sense that we have, like the, the dollar as a reserve currency has both the most optionality and the highest speed of exchange with the most stability. And we used OPEC and a whole global system to make that the case. Like, of course we did, that thing makes sense. But if I can exchange one thing for another thing through an exchange layer, the challenge becomes I'm taking things that in reality you can't make out of each other and making a abstracted value layer where the fungibility in that abstracted value layer can say, I have an incentive to have more of this abstract value token and I can actually destroy real stuff to get more of this abstract value token. So I can't make a tree out of copper, but I can use money to buy copper or buy trees and so in reality, those things are non-fungible. In the economic layer, they're fungible. When I just make economic calculus choices, I'll end up messing up the base layer world. So how do you quantify things, but recognize these metrics are not commensuratable. There's no amount of parts per million of mercury that equals any amount of parts per million of CO2 or any number of extinct species. So how do I decide how much of this is worth how much of this? Well, there's no fucking real good way to do that. And if I try to figure out some basis of the commensuration of those metrics, uh, we usually end up getting pretty gruesome problems there. So do you need to quantify stuff for the accounting? Yes, but it's almost like each non-fungible reality needs its own closed loop accounting. I need a closed loop accounting on copper. I need a closed loop accounting on nitrogen, but the I can't have a game theoretic optionality token that is fungible between copper and nitrogen. And that would look like a unit of account or a token for every fucking non-fungible thing um, and some way to close the, you know, and, and yet we want something like exchange for the reasons that we mentioned earlier. So I would say there's some really tricky things in how we do the quantified accounting part properly. For sure. And I think you, you're hitting the nail on the head. I, I really, um, I, I talk a lot about that. What is responsible fungification? Or like when you, how do you translate between non-fungible? I think that's that's the big question. And I think, um, you know, there's two two ways, I think, 
to answer that. And one is, you know, at the end of the day, for it to be useful, you do have to actually be able to have like an exchange rate between, you know, mercury poisoning and carbon sequestration or, um, you know, oil extraction or a debit or service in the economy, you you sort of have to. And at the moment, and there's different ways you could do that. You could do that algorithmically through through some form of, you know, we our society, Western society, at least, and I think most societies have been dealing with these these issues in various to various degrees of success and failure for a really long time. You know, it's like there's like blood debt, you know, back in the day, if you killed somebody, you owed their family, you know, like five pieces of gold or whatever. Like, obviously, that's crazy. But that's kind of the level of things that we're talking about. You know, if if, if a company commits ecocide, how much do they owe and how do you replace that? And t- to me, those are the coordinate, like those are the prime coordination problems i i was just up in cop at cop 15 biodiversity congress of the parties where they're essentially negotiating this right they're negoti- they were negotiating you know how do you include ecological integrity biodiversity metrics into corporate accounting and the, like a framework for reporting and you know incorporate that into the rule of law of all the signatory states in order to you know, sort of like hold themselves and the companies that operate within them accountable to ensuring that we are not continuing to degrade the wildlife habitat is is one of the primary things that they're talking about. I I tend to think, you know, maybe this is wrong, but I tend to think it's it's easy to get lost in the the complexity of that, but. There's also a few clear places, and and this may be, you know, this may be totally off the, you know, I may be off my rocker here, I would say, you know, because again, I guess from a first principle perspective, it seems to me not so much that I'm like a a hand wavy um, proponent of the financialization, commodification and monetization of nature, but instead that that is a like an inevitable logic from a particular worldview that is going to be unfolding in response to this specific challenge that we're facing therefore the question is how does it happen in the best possible way and how do we set ourselves up for the highest likelihood of evolving the right answer to that big question that you just asked daniel which i don't claim to have an answer to but how do you govern standards of fungibility between completely non-fungible elements? How do you set up an infrastructure for this type of complex accounting in a way that allows communities, like local communities, to express agency so that they're preserving lifeways and ecological integrity in the face of these really like crazy global dynamics that that, those are the questions that i sit with when i'm making decisions around you know design decisions around region network for instance like how we're approaching things it's less like oh here's the magical way i have the equation (laughs) here's the algorithm um no it's more like okay what do we need what are the tools we need for this decision to be made over and over again by in like a local context so that people can say 
in our context, how do we make the decision about what that cost is going to be? And then how do we share that that decision and then potentially make global decisions about those things as well? Those are like primary contracts between humans, I think. That's that's my perspective. Like that really cuts to the meat of, you know, how to overcome the, the coordination errors and like what we all need to be working on, essentially. Yeah, I have... Um thoughts on that but uh wondering what jason is thinking i guess i'm just curious gregory what what are some ways you know what are some tools platforms that you see can bridge this gap between kind of contextual integrity uh both across communities but also across uh, non-fungible resources and global exchange rates like do you have some ideas or does Regen Network have some ideas of how to bridge that gap? Uh, yes. So, I mean, there's there's la- there's like a, a set of layers here. I, I feel like we're riding a tiger. I don't feel like we have these answers down pat, but I, I there are some. Um, okay. So, so there's a set of pieces here. So, so from sort of first principles, you know, I think you need to have you know, these essentially these non-fungible units that I would refer to as a class as eco-credits, which are a symbolic representation of a positive ecological outcome, right? Intrinsically have a relationship with something that is like an ecological debit or debt unit. That's most easily understood and, and most mature in our consciousness, civilization scale. It's like carbon offsets. Right. Where we're like, okay, you know, you know, a ton of carbon emitted in the atmosphere has a certain social cost. Therefore, a ton of carbon that has been avoided or has been removed has a certain price. That's that's pretty clear because it's like for like. Right. And obviously what Daniel's raising is. But how does that relate across different domains? So I think the way to answer and and but just to say, even in that domain of carbon crediting, there's an awful lot of complexity and challenges. And I don't want to hand wave that away, <laughs> even just to get some semblance of liquidity and fungibility and price within a new carbon economy that appropriately places the, the value on living carbon in biodiverse intact forests such that you know, uh, that tree in the Amazon is worth more standing there and providing its, you know, in a reductionist human utilitarian language, its ecosystem services in air quotes, that it's worth more there doing that than it is as toilet paper or whatever. That, that, just that fact needs to get encoded and there's, there's plenty of challenges there. Then when you're moving across domains, you know, I think the answer to that question, um, the, the work that Matt Perkowski's doing with Bioform Labs and Open Earth, um, the uh, John Clippinger, the work of um, this sort of this idea of the implementation of active inference modeling, uh, which is a form of, I, I guess, um, Carl Friston um, developed this form of essentially it's like Bayesian statistics to model cognition is where this actually is coming from. So it's kind of AI or AI adjacent, but it's been started. It's people are starting to develop it to create this concept of, I guess you could say a, a holistic organization that is stewarding common pool resources, 
right, in which you can have this multivariant approach to maintaining non-fungibility and bringing together multiple stakeholders to make governance decisions about what are intrinsic intrinsic values or relational values, two different approaches, not just strictly exchange, utilitarian exchange value, where the only value comes from its its sort of like open market exchange value. So like to create that organizational structure where people can can overcome coordination issues around that, have units of account and coordination issues, it is something like, I think, kind of an AI augmented or or it's better to say just sort of like computer augmented system where people can govern specific parameters and upgrade those specific parameters to define, you know, in our community, this is what we find valuable. We find the water quality important. We find biodiversity, uh, soil health. These are things, each one of them independently, which can be monitored and measured. What's important is to think of them as a living is living, not to just be managing towards that singular metric and extracting as much value, but to be, you know, just like anything, we use this information to help us manage complex systems and to kind of build, you know, to build systems around that, that then, then that can have like the success of that unit's ability to manage that complexity, then that conceivably can have an exchange rate, right? You People could be buying in, longing and shorting these different kind of self-managing units, and they can create, you know, their own sort of internal, internal credit and currency approach. Um, and you sort of like start to get something that looks like a foreign exchange system based on different currencies. And out of that, I think you, you know, you sort of, th- this is getting a little speculative here, but you, you want, we want to, you know, evolve the global reserve currency. The global reserve currency needs to have um, its base. It needs to have liquidity. It needs to have fungibility. It needs to allow optionality um, and and be able to allow people to you know exercise agency and power. But it needs to be derived from our success at managing these common pool resources. Right. So instead of deriving from the entire financial industry being long on the US military's continued ability to ex- you know exert hegemony over oil reserves and the other elements that sort of make up the US dollar's supremacy and liquidity as a unit of account it, it needs to be evolved over time um, or maybe quickly to have different first principles that are generating that liquidity, I believe. I don't believe we get out of this without evolving our currency system. I don't know if that answers your question, Jason, but. Yeah, it starts to. Uh, Maybe just a a kind of a, might be a dumb question, but if you're trying to assess values of resources, negative or positive externalities, both across space and across time in nested systems right so you you mentioned like a community who values clean water but then as part of a larger hydrologic cycle that impacts the bioregion and ultimately the globe so you have to account for that are are you thinking that basically machine learning ai is basically going to do the legwork in you know tabulating all of that value Uh, by the way you know what is the discount rate over time and how are we how are we thinking about that 
Well, I love the discount rate question and that I don't have a clean answer for uh, discount rate questions. I only have hand waviness there. My instinct is, yeah, we're going to tend, this is a great use of technology and computational capability. This is high tech, high nature, right? Um, and at the beginning, you don't really need it that much. We can get away with a lot of, like a little bit of hand waving, some shared belief, and it's not that much computational capacity to be, you know, having a pretty solid handle on carbon cycle health, for instance. And if you have a pretty solid handle on carbon cycle health and you include some metrics for, you know, hydrological cycle or biodiversity cycle, you don't need, we don't need to be getting into this really, really crazy detailed, we know everything about everything world. We don't, you you get a proxy you and you can build an index off of that proxy. And it isn't that crazy. We're not tracking everything, right? Um, now, of course, if you have a single me metric that gets challenging because then people will eventually try to game it. And, you know, so you want it to be multi-metric and sort of variant. You need some checks and balances there, but you don't want to over-complexify it. You need the redundancy so that it doesn't just collapse on itself, but you also don't want to... I'm definitely not a believer in just like monitor everything and create this giant, you know, it, it gets top-heavy really quickly. So there's sort of, you know, there there's a there's a lean version of this, which I think is is viable. And you can already, if you squint, you can already see it emerging. So I, um, I don't know either of y'all's audience as well enough. Uh, I might imagine that for many people who are engaged in regenerative agriculture or more local resilience, a conversation about the complexity and game theoretic susceptibility of fungibility of disparate metrics is a little bit esoteric. It, it does happen to be critical. So I just, just rock, rock on. <laughs> Don't worry about it. I hope the stuff we're talking about is useful. I, I want to try to maybe ground it a little bit. So I wanted to give a couple examples. So we're talking about a community values clean water. Okay. Well, let's say that the water sources we have access to right now are not as clean as we would like them. And so we look at how do we clean them? Well, it happens to be that the things that aren't clean in there are not just the results of normal natural processes, but industrial chemical manufacturing process where the water has tiny pharmaceuticals in it and has fluorinated surfactants and fluoride and, you know, a bunch of things in there and chlorine resistant cryptosporidium and whatever. And the normal processes of filtering that water through kind of biologic process where the waste is used for something else don't actually work. Or we just have way too many fucking people in areas where we're using up all the groundwater and we have to look at desal. So I can make water for my people cleaner through desal or through reverse osmosis, but the waste that I'm pulling out of the water has to go somewhere. And if it is waste that I can't biologically process easily, um, because, you know, when you, one of the things to understand about uh, the post-industrial world, and I don't really mean the industrial revolution, I really mean starting with like blacksmithing, is before that, the rest of the natural world is just a cycling of the same atoms in the biosphere layer. Very little engaging with the minerals deep in rocks, right? And so when we think about what mining was, 
we figure out how to dig stuff up that is well below the biosphere, separate out the various elements of these rock ores to get parts that are useful to us. And typically, there's a bunch of parts that are not that useful, which is the toxic mining tailings. It is maybe the number one source of pollution pushing us on the freshwater planetary boundary. But even the other thing, even the intentionally useful things that we refine, we refine the lead and the mercury and the cadmium for industrial purposes. Those were all extremely elementally low in the biosphere, which is what allowed the biosphere to work, where you have basically mostly six atoms and then a relatively even distribution of the types of trace minerals that occur in biological things so that a frog and a honeybee and bee venom and a tree can all get turned into each other through in a mushroom and whatever. But it's not true when it comes to styrofoam or lead in the water or a fluorinated surfactant or whatever. So if humans are going to actually leave the biosphere via mining to make this other stuff, we have to create closed loop processes for all of those things at an atomic level. And we have to factor the breakdown of those systems. How do you make sure they're highly resilient? Because nature already made these radically overlapping, highly resilient systems, but for the elements that are in it. And we're looking at a different kind of elemental set. So that's a significant story, right? Because processing organic matter waste from farming or whatever that gets into water through biologic processes, but where it's of biologic origin is different than the other stuff. So if I make my water cleaner through desal or RO, but the downstream was I had to make some other water dirtier somewhere else, how do I think through the accounting of that properly? And particularly if it's very hard to measure because of dispersals and, and maybe I don't even know all the things that were in it to know what to measure for. How do I know of the, am I measuring pharmaceuticals in this water? Which pharmaceuticals? How do I know? Do I just use total dissolved solids? So this is just an example to start to say it's hard, right? It's hard to ensure that the method I'm going to use to clean the water here, if I don't go upstream to things like fixing our entire process of chemical manufacture and industrial process from scratch, it's hard to try to locally fix that without externalizing some cost or some problem somewhere. And so just thinking through that is important. That's the first thing. And then I was going to say, can I, can I interject there just for, uh, yeah. for, for, for a quick moment? So so in the carbon world, what you're describing is called leakage, where you're you're working on calculating um, negative externalities from the positive action you just took. And there is sort of a way to think about that. And in, in obviously, the, from my perspective, a, a logical thing to do is to make sure you, you, A, you track that, you incorporate that, and you price it high enough to incentivize that larger transformation. Where it's basically like, yeah, if we're going to do, if if we're serious about this and this is sort of like how we're going to be tracking value, oh, we've got to go upstream and we've got to actually transform this whole system. And it's logical how important that is. Because, you know, at the end of the day, we are getting to this. It's sort of like we get into these recursive arguments and we're sort of like, are we going to allocate resources to repair the life support system of our spaceship? <laughs> That's kind of an absurd argument to get into. And in, in a way, it's like, do we, you have enough resources to do that? Well, you you have to go do it, right? Reallocate resources to do that thing. So, okay, um, so this is actually an 
I'm going to go where I wanted to go next. And then I want to come back to what you just said. So let's say that we have, we know that optimizing for a single metric, no matter how good it is, is very problematic. And our single best example of that so far is GDP or GDP per capita, because of course, the idea that GDP going up means the total products and services that humans are choosing to engage with voluntarily, even though they don't have to, because it solves real problems and the quality of their life goes up. But GDP going up goes up through war and through addiction and involving environmental destruction. So we know that's not a good enough metric. So then we want to start to tack on other things like a carbon credit or a Gini coefficient or whatever. And so let's say similarly, we're, we go to just the regenerative world and we say, okay, we're going to focus on the metric sequestering CO2. And we all know this is like a toy example, but we all know that we could use more NPK fertilizer to grow certain kinds of genetically modified high CO2 sequestering plants that the most CO2 per unit time in a particular area, while killing oil city and causing more nitrogen and phosphorus runoff into the water. And so then we're like, well, that's not good. So we don't want carbon reductionism. So we have to factor the nitrogen and the phosphorus and the soil microbiota. And so then you start to say, okay, but how much effluent of nitrogen is worth how much of the CO2? Now I have this exchange rate, but as say in an area there's almost no nitrogen effluent and adding a little bit more doesn't seem anywhere near bad as critically we need to get CO2 out. You have a certain exchange rate. As the nitrogen starts to increase towards a point of criticality, that exchange rate has to change. So there's this dynamically changing based on something other than markets, because typically the dynamic exchange is based on each owner of value deciding what they will pay for the thing. But here, you can't just have individual owners of value deciding what they will pay for things that are necessary for planetary life support, where a lot of people will have incentive to free ride and say, I don't care to invest in that particular thing. Um, and so you have to have something like cost being fixed by law. So let's even say that we have 10 or 500 biometrics that we're factoring in our resilience, and we have some complex algorithm for affecting the weighting of those things. Then I bring an AI system to exploit it. And I say, okay, well, whatever strategy gives, there's going to be some weighted function that will optimize the currency units I can get based on the current you know, metric weighting set. So I can use an AI to say, how do I optimize my currency extraction? And of course, it will be addressing carbon and nitrogen and all those things in there, but it won't be addressing the pollinator or whatever thing isn't in that set yet and factored. And so I can externalize harm to whatever's not in the set and or by exploiting an exchange rate that as soon as I exploit it a bit stops making sense. But then as soon as people catch it up and realize it, my my asymmetrically better than the systems faster AI figures out how to optimize for that. So not everyone has an equal ability to exploit market value. So whoever is able to employ higher tech tools to exploit the market value, even in a weighted set of metrics, can still end up doing that thing. And that's the thing we have to protect for. So you're talking about use the AI to do the opposite. And this is why it was key that you said it was not a private property ownership model that would incentivize that. It was some commons communal ownership model. And you probably have some kind of choice making that is not exclusively associated with 
ownership, right? Like if someone has a voting right associated with citizenship, they can't actually sell that. So it is non-fungible, non-transferable. And yet you might have certain choices like what gets encoded in rule of law that supersedes economic incentive uh, that happen in that space. So you could say the voting right is a non-fungible token that has power over certain things that none of the including the regulation of what the fungible and extractable tokens do, which is right. That's already what we have in the idea of a, you know, a liberal democracy with having democracy and markets together. It's just this, you can see that the capacity of the market figured out how to erode the capacity of the governance over time. So I'm not saying that the ideas you're talking about aren't the right approach of things that have to happen. I'm just pointing out some of the things that have to be thought through well in the failure case of those strategies in the process of designing them. Totally. And and the risk here, you know, to be frank, is that the biggest challenge we face is that thinking those through well is an anti-signal to investment capital. <laughs> yeah. Because we're in the middle of this crazy race to the bottom where, you know, a VC wants you to not think about those things. And they want you to just like get like win the short term game over and over and do that as effectively as possible. And if you're not doing that, it's an anti signal to investment. There aren't really like the patient capital, philanthropic capital, you know, where where are the present moment resources going to come from to really sort of structure and engage with those questions? We've done a good job of sort of like magically <laughs> giving ourselves space and time, although, you know, that that is, doesn't doesn't last forever. And the amount of space and time needed to think through and des design, like go through design exercises, pilots, be humble and like expect to be wrong and sort of continue to set up the right sandboxes. For this, you know, because at the end of the day, I think I completely resonate with your intuition, Daniel, that, you know, in order for this to work, we actually have to get down and, and redefine sort of like the monopoly on private property and exiting rights. And that's really key to, to setting things up so that they work well is, you know, really at the end of the day, I believe this is all a um, an exercise in re-embedding markets into commons. Right, because that that's how markets can be a force for coordination instead of just sort of like this, you know, this race in which value extraction is is optimized. Embedding markets in commons, I think, is a really good high level tag for a lot of things that needs to happen. Jason, where are you at in this conversation that sort of emerged, you know, and, and rapidly sped off as I was like, oh, oh, this is, you know, this is what we're working on. Exactly. <laughs> well, I'm I'm enjoying listening uh, to this. I find this interesting. I mean, in the back of my mind, what I'm thinking is, let's say that somehow uh, your vision was achieved, Gregory, and we were able to internalize all of the externalities what would that mean about how society is structured? And this goes back to my idea about kind of networked bioregionalism or cosmopolitan localism or, you know, whatever kind of, uh, you know, vague kind of generality, you know, we, we want to think about. And and to me, it's still like, you know, if, if, if we're moving away from linear systems and there's a lot more recycling of minerals um, and we, we develop technology to do that, I still think that there's going to be more focus, and maybe you, uh, I'm curious if you agree, 
on local production of some things. Um, I, th- I think food is a big one. And so it's a, and, and, and it's less efficient because you don't have the economies of scale. And so it's an implicit kind of degrowth, which, you know, many people think needs to happen anyway. Right. And but we still need global coordination and we need global tech, especially in the digital tech sphere uh, and mining of key minerals and things. And so there will still be global trade, but uh, and there will still be global coordination. But I, I, I guess what is, you know, if, if all of this goes according to plan, how is society structured differently? Like, like do you have an idea about that or we just have no way of knowing? I certainly have ideas. I, I, I'd love to hear Daniel's comments on this. I feel like, you know, oftentimes, Daniel, in the, you're so brilliant at describing the meta crisis and sort of like walking through the, the sort of like logical sequences and, and, and multipolar traps. But oftentimes, I find myself when listening to your conversations in this sort of like, oh, I really want to know Daniel's opinion about like the world that potentially comes next, the the future vision and paths to get there. Uh, They're so, okay. I appreciate you separating those two things because they're really important. The paths to get there have to be enactable and enactable at the progressively increasing scales that are needed if it is to become you know, widespread enough to address global issues. And that means has to be enactable within the current cultural value systems, incentive landscapes, deterrent landscapes, and everything else, which don't look anything like what an idealized long-term system might be. But an idealized long-term system cannot just be made to happen by global divine mandate or something. You know, so a, a kind of libertarian type like a Peter Thiel might ask the question if someone is to describe what their more ideal long-term system is, would say, tell me how your utopia works. And then tell me, given how many people for religious reasons and for their political ideologies and their vested interests don't want it and would do anything they could to prevent it, tell me how much violence you're willing to enact to make your utopia happen and what the results of inflicting that much violence culturally into those who do it are, and is it still utopia? And so, um, you know, this is like John right, Rawls' right. position, right. the enactment problem. So I think we have to go back and forth between imagining, like understanding what the fundamental problems are well enough to think about what solution sets that would be long-term viable are which is the kind of future planning to think through how to reverse engineer, but then also understand the current landscape of the world and what is enactable and what creates externalities when you try to enact it to say what could take a step in the right direction. Also knowing that a heap of stuff will happen that we can't anticipate. So a step in the right direction, reassess, try again, the forward engineering approach. And you kind of have to go back and forward between those two approaches and forming each other. Um, So we can talk about, some criteria of what a longer term viable set of global human systems must entail, which doesn't necessarily say how do we enact them or what exactly they look like, if that seems like an interesting starting place. Yeah, that sounds good yeah. to me. I, and, I, and I really appreciate that. I mean, I think that's really um, an important <laughs> reminder that the reconnection of the ends and the means and the dynamic relationship between them and 
you know, how impossible it is to separate them. And maybe it's a distinction between a protopian approach and a utopian, uh, utopian approach or, you know, something like that. So, yeah, I think that that's a great um, framing. And yeah, I mean, I think just diving in and kind of like weaving those back and forth a little bit would be, um, would be really beautiful. Yeah. I think the, the kind of classic libertarian capitalist argument about, uh, why not to be utopian is that in the name of some kind of benefit of all the people, Marxist ideology, we got Stalin and Mao and et cetera. Um, I don't think that is a holistically solid assessment of the dynamics that happened, but it, no, it, like <laughs> thinking through the ideal world where you're willing to cause whatever harm you need and Hitler in another case, um, this actually comes up for me today in terms of, my concerns about how much utilitarian ethics are proliferating as we're doing planning ethics in the machine learning so that the self-driving car can decide who to kill in a scenario, the passenger or the person in the street or the whatever. And then as a result of just kind of not only the coding of that, but rationalism in general, much easier to do some kind of utilitarian ethics, which gets again into these commensuration issues. Uh, how many of this extinct, nearly extinct species are worth? How many of these not that extinct, but maybe more sentient species and whatever? Um, question for you, Daniel. Um, in that specific example, do you know if anyone is thinking about what it would look like to allow a driver to program in their own choice about that, like the owner of the car or a company that you know owns a fleet or something, to say, you know, we would. You know, because people make those choices maybe in split second decisions, but you know, people do make that. That's a decision that usually that that agency would usually sort of vest down to a person in the driver's seat who might choose to take the risk on themselves instead of killing, you know, like a kid or something. Yeah. So the I mean, this is a very complicated topic. Is when you start to have these very complex cybernated systems, the control on the cybernated systems affects a lot. So do we try to govern the controls on them or do we try to make it uh, user adjustable? Um, yes, it's being thought of in all of these places. I would say one of the places the conversation has advanced a lot is the control of social media algorithm settings, knowing how problematic they are currently when you optimize for time on site and engagement in ways that increase depression and tribalism and sanctimony and um, certainty and wrongness at the same time. It's obvious that they need control differently. Does the government step in to control the algorithm and ensure that it's in some positive fiduciary relationship with the society and the individuals who kind of figures out and adjudicates what that algorithm set should be? Or does each user get to decide for themselves and can the user even actually do that well if they can't factor the complexity of what the non-obvious effects of those settings are? And then also, what are the default settings? Because even if I can change the settings, almost nobody will. And so the uh, ease of change in the default settings end up being significant. So yeah, I think this is a very important, uh, it's a very important topic. But the place I was going is, utopianism causing violence the version right now that i see a lot is um especially you know the EA movement and places that think about long-termism through utilitarian ethical lenses can say in 
the most amount of suffering could occur and the most amount of benefit could occur by humanity existing over billions of years and the huge number of people that will happen when we're an interplanetary species. So to the amount of harm that happens from not getting there is so much more that it justifies anything we need to do to get there, therefore, dot, dot, dot. And in the name of excessive epistemic certainty about future cases, we can justify a lot of violence now because it's less harmful than the other thing in our thought model. Um, And of course, we can do this with climate change because climate change is going to be so bad. We need to do X, Y, and Z geoengineering project. So (laughs) I would say in general, the I want people to forecast and make good choices now based on that. But I'm also dubious of them being over certain of their forecasts. And as a result, from a totally ethical standpoint, justifying harmful actions now because it seems less harmful than inaction. And so how to make sure that when you're doing that thing, you're calculating that you're weighing your own uncertainty heavily enough is really important. Disclaimer noted. Now we want to hear the vision of you, of the future that you want to see and live in. <laughs> so let's say that we look at a civilization using the Marvin Harris model of a civilization is can be thought of in terms of its infrastructure, its social structures, and its superstructure. Infrastructure being the entire technology stack that it utilizes. Social structures being all of the agreement fields, the economics, the governance, the law, the institutions that it uses for collective choice making. And the superstructure being its culture and its basically shared values, definition of the good life, things like that. So if we, instead of saying infrastructure, social structure, superstructure, we could say technology, political economy, and culture, something like that. Then we could say these three things inevitably interaffect each other. No one is the most fundamental. Different schools of thought will argue, like Marvin Harris argued, actually infrastructure drives the other ones almost exclusively. Almost every spiritual and religious ideology says why superstructure can guide the other ones. Obviously, when insofar as we're thinking about economic theory and theory of governance, we're focused on the way the social structures will guide the other ones. So just to go very fast through this, they all interaffect each other. And there are necessary things that must happen criteria-wise in each of those that lead to a set of reinforcing dynamics that can lead to a metastable civilization. And so if we were to talk about, uh, Greg, what you're saying, each of those three is nested in ecology. Yes, of course. These are the three aspects of kind of human civilization. And exactly, we're totally nested in ecology. And you could say the ecology is nested in physics if you want. So a, a couple of things. We talk about the infrastructure side a lot, though in this conversation, we've actually been talking about social structure, um, currencies and governance and like that, but we've been talking about abstractly. We talk about infrastructure like a closed loop materials economy. We have to ensure that we are not um, meeting human needs via turning nature unrenewably into meeting those human needs and particularly unrenewably at larger scales than can continue to happen and then creating waste faster than can be processed. So one, you have to move to completely closed loop atomic accounting, like at an atomic and molecular level, closed loops, and you have to go post-growth. It doesn't mean there can't be growth, but it means that the embedded growth obligation has to go away so that any growth that happens is actually calibratable with the environment. So now what actually does that materials economy look like? I think, well, obviously our... Energy production has to transition in that world to a uh, renewable 
energy source and a post-pollution energy source, um, or where we can be processing that pollution within a, a set of processes that, that can be described as closed loop adequately. And I think that this is where if you just say, what is the very long term versus what is the very near term, near term based on intermittency issues and based on energy return on energy investment, um, do we get off of hydrocarbons exclusively with kind of um, decentralized renewables? Probably not. Um, probably some large scale centralized renewable type things like deep geothermal and maybe space-based solar or whatever are probably important and probably nuclear is important. But here's where I would say thorium nuclear and phase three or phase four and micronuclear in non-seismic areas with hardened energy grids and different waste management is really, really different than phase one and phase two nuclear without a hardened energy grid in seismic areas. So you shouldn't think of nuclear as a category, just like you shouldn't think of vaccines as a category. You should think of each one with its own unique pros and cons. But there is obviously, it takes a certain amount of hydrocarbon energy to build any of the new energy since that's where energy comes from. So there is a transition of the energy economy and then a transition of our materials acquisition and our waste management and so we can think about that. There's a whole lot more in terms of what should be local, what should be at various scales, what should be at the city scale, the bioregion scale, the continent scale, or the multi-continent or planetary scale. Obviously, there are some minerals that are really important for things that we care about that we don't know how to operate without that are not evenly distributed across the world that can't be only at a local scale on and on. But like, do we need to be processing organic matter across bioregions or should organic matter all process closed loop within a bioregion? probably should, and water cycles and things like that. But so there's a, a whole set of criteria for what is the future of infrastructure, um, the scale, the criteria, and the transition of the specific subsets of the technologies. When it comes to superstructure and social structure, the first thing I think is really worth saying is that if your social structure, i.e. your system of governance and collective choice making that is enactable via something like rule of law and maybe a monopoly of violence. If that social structure is not grounded in superstructure, i.e. if it's not grounded in the collective values and will of the people, it will be oppressive. And yet at the same time, if the collective values and will of the people want things for themselves that is bad for other people or bad for the world, the thing that is grounded in their values will also suck. So Ultimately, you have like the cultural work to have people understand all of the trade-offs well, like actually one to have them care about every part of the web of life they're interconnected with and have an identity that is an emergent part of an interconnected web of life, not a separate, our nation, our people, our religion, separate from the other guys or our species. A culture that doesn't do that is a culture that will be bound to war and environmental conflict because the desire... The identity of the people is separate from the world enough that they will use their technology in ways that cause harm to it. So the identity and then the associated values, not all value sets are actually commensurable with being able to steward the power of exponential technology. Only a few of them are. And given if you can affect everything all that much, you have to care about it, which means you have to have an identity that's bound with it. I do think that becomes obligate of any worldview that advances itself. 
And the ones that don't can't be part of a worldview that advances themselves because warfare, which most all worldviews in the past have done with exponential technology equaling exponential warfare, self-terminates. And externalities, which pretty much every, which, you know, many worldviews throughout history have driven lots of environmental externalities, also cap out. So only worldviews that don't drive ex externalities and warfare, i.e. care about everything and have the complexity to process it, have the possibility of continuing in the ecology and physics of the universe the way that it is. Hard question here for you. Um, what do we do with people who have a warfare worldview? How do you, how does that transformation, this is kind of like moving into the critical path or like the, the path dependency, you know, what what it, how do we dance along that line to decompose or compost or re, you know allow people to to regenerate or evolve their worldview you know because obviously if you impose a, if if you act with a worldview that can conceive of sort of like cleansing anyone who has that worldview you've just collapsed into it right so what's the yeah, I'd love to hear you riff on that for just a moment um, in service to the like toggling back and forth between the the ends and the means. Yeah. Um, okay. So first, let's when we say warfare, we usually mean actual physical violence, so we'll called kinetic warfare. But sometimes we can talk about peacetime where we engage in trade and politics and diplomacy, and then wartime where we engage in bombs. But the other way to look at it is a continuum of navigating conflict where, you know, von Clausewitz says war is politics by other means, which that same statement can be reversed the other way. So in that way, you can talk about kinetic warfare in the context of economic warfare, diplomatic warfare, cultural warfare, information warfare, population-centric warfare, and particularly since the proliferation of Things like fifth-generation population-centric warfare are actually primary strategies of nation-states against each other. The clear line of using bombs to attack each other versus not is really gone. So then we're really looking at kind of conflict theory. And, um, and so you can even see that the left and right inside of the U.S. are engaged in a culture war, right? An info war and culture war against each other where each of the last few elections feels existential to the entire Republican system if our guy doesn't win to the other guy, to the other side. And so obviously a democracy breaks down if your fellow countrymen are the enemy, are an existentially terrible enemy that you're at war with. There is no kind of common unity basis. But what I, and so what you see is that the left will say things that appeal to the left, even if they totally villainize the right, because there is no anti-incentive in the current governance system immediately for villainizing the other side and pissing them off because you you know if you had something like ranked choice voting you would actually be disincentivized for doing that highly polarizing thing because whoever gets voted very last does much worse and so you'd have an incentive to appeal across the entire space but where the current incentive is mostly just to appeal to your own side you can do it by villainizing the other but then of course the other gets existentially scared enough from that that they mount a more powerful and counter response next time they get elected whatever you did in four years gets undone in the next four years 
And whatever strategies of warfare that you learned that were effective, they reverse engineered, made better next time. And so the net result is just an escalation of an arms race. And the escalation of the arms race means the consequences just keep getting worse and worse. So if you're not totally fucking short-sighted, you will stop that. Um, if you're totally short-sighted, you'll say, we'll deal with that later. We have to win the selection, whatever it takes, villainize the other side, tell some lies so long as you can get away with them, you know, whatever it is. Um, but if you realize that whatever you do that's so important that it, it's worth doing that in these few, four years will all get undone in the next ones, and you're equipping the other side to be more powerful by whatever new strategies you figure out that they'll reverse engineer, then you calm yourself down a little bit and say, okay, not just if I'm going to share a message, uh, how do I share a message that appeals with my intended user base, but who's not going to like and agree with this message and how are they going to respond? You've got to think about that. So thinking through the long-term failure of culture war can get someone to stop it. And in the same way with kinetic war, thinking through, um, okay, so in an escalating arms race of this on all new exponential technologies where we're going to weaponize gene-specific bioweapons and um, autonomous AI weapon systems, and this means that smaller and smaller actors are going to have catastrophic weapons. Like, who the fuck wants to live in that world? And how does anyone deploy that tech and ensure that it doesn't then get deployed against them? So there is a way that anyone who's engaged in war out of necessity can think through the long-term non-viability of that path and start to say, is there a better path? If you think that path is viable, though, it, you might go for it. And I'm not saying in the current world, there is no place for war. If you have a group that has been highly conditioned with ethnocentric, genocidal cleansing ideologies, and they're weaponized and they're willing to move with that, you can't necessarily not engage with that. But the question is how to engage with it only in kind of absolute necessity and orienting towards a case of getting out of that thing. And that's actually very tricky because I don't think you can say, let's never physically engage in war. I think you just, your ideology will lose. But if you're successful at it, you usually think about how to keep using that same success principle. So to say, how do we use a success principle only where necessary while obsoleting the thing that made us successful is a type of frame of mind that is necessary, but not common. Yeah, I feel like you're sort of sharing, you know, it's like Machiavelli's Prince. This is like uh, Schmachtenberger's, you know, Prince 2.0. <laughs> like if you're going to be a leader, these are the things that you need to think through in order to have a, a longevity and, and stability in 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 power as a responsible. Not that Machiavelli was necessarily concerned with responsibility, but you game know, game B Machiavelli. Yeah, game B Machiavelli. Yeah, <laughs> I think game. I think Machiavelli was saying, if you want to be effective at all in protecting your people or engaging in anything, like these are principles that are at play. You must understand them. But then what we're saying is the ongoing arms race of everyone employing those principles more effectively in the short term actually ruins everything in the long term. And yet, if you don't employ them at all in the short term, you'll probably just fail. So how do you not fail in the short term while seeking to change the entire game rather than just continue to escalate it? Because winning it doesn't equal winning it forever. It equals escalating it. Yeah, no, for sure. And I think that that's a 
that's a that's a really important that sort of like not losing while changing the game um is yeah. is a really powerful provocation i think and and i think i can't help but feel like the simple way of saying what you're saying is we need to appeal to each other's better angels or we need you know there's it, it ultimately boils down to sort of like a moral decision for, for people in power to choose the long game over the short game I, that's how I think, i'm distilling what you're saying in 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 very brief so i think that nobody can choose the long game over the short game as long as any other competitors choosing the short game and the short game choice gives them enough game theoretic advantage in the near term multipolar trap everybody here knows it well and so if china was to say okay we're going to price carbon properly because that's important for the environment but they couldn't ensure that the us and india are going to then they just can't right and vice versa so you have to be able to create the possibility that for anybody to do that thing, enough people have to buy into it that they're not so disadvantaged by doing the right long-term thing. They're not so disadvantaged in the near term that they're fucked. In order to do that, you've got to create very high transparency to see is the other side actually keeping it. And you have to create um, some kind of capacity for enforcement associated with that transparency. So I think global multilateralism with high degrees of technologically mediated transparency satellites, et cetera, that allow us to be able to make new agreements that nobody could make on their own because it would be so competitively disadvantageous and yet everybody has to make. I think that's critical, right? I think we have to do that. And it's going to be really hard because anyone within that country's population that doesn't understand the criticality of that, which will be many, will think it's a terrible idea because the trade-offs affect things that they care about. When we start talking about degrowth, which is necessary for the environment, anyone who doesn't get that that's necessary for the environment and thinks that it is some kind of um, global conspiracy of lizard people or something will say that degrowth actually means less resources for my family. And maybe it even disproportionately first hits poorer people worse. So those, like, those things really have to be thought through um, and factored. But yeah, it's not just a moral argument because you like, you can't make the moral choice and lose to the other side that is doing the immoral thing and then have the immoral thing run the whole world and then have that be moral. It's not, right? You, So it's a combination. Now, wait, this is important. What I was trying to say about infrastructure, social structure, superstructure was that the social structure, i.e. rule of law that can back a monopoly of violence, that can bind any other actor from doing things that we collectively agree are fucked to do, that basis, the jurisprudence of the basis of that rule of law, plus the adjudication of it has to be grounded in the will of the people, i.e. superstructure or culture has to be upstream from social structure. And then your social structure, your governance layer has to have the adequate OODA loops, i.e. the adequate speed and capacity of process to be able to govern that which it's supposed to govern, to be able to regulate that which it's supposed to regulate. Because if the private sector and tech can outmaneuver through the combination of lobbying and campaign finance and better lawyers for loopholes in the law and um, first mover advantage, if it can outmaneuver the regulatory process, then you basically have broken the regulatory process and it doesn't meaningfully exist. So you've got to ensure that your social structure employs the same types of information technologies or the cutting edge of information technology so that it has the OODA loops necessary to regulate 
the field of tech. And then its job is to guide, bind, and direct the tech for its life-supporting and, and yet not, not life-supporting purposes. Its capacity to guide, bind, and direct it has to be grounded in the collective values of the people, which is the cultural development, which must be at the level of global shared interconnectivity of identity and values. And then the tech doesn't just affect the environment and doesn't just affect the physicality of the people, it affects the value systems of the people. Because any tech that we engage with creates patterns of human behavior that end up affecting our experience of the world. So you've got to also think through not just the physical externalities, but the psychosocial externalities that are in turn affecting culture or the superstructure. So now we're just describing what does the long-term world look like? And it looks like where everybody understands the interconnectivity of the world and cares about it and even has their identity reified at that level. I'm not a separate being. I'm not just an American or a Christian or whatever. I exist because this whole biosphere exists. I wouldn't exist without the plants and the algae and so many other people that make all the shit that I depend on. I'm an emergent property of this whole thing. And because I don't even exist without all the rest of it, I can't have an identity that is separate from it and seek to advantage myself at the cost of it. And that's just true, right? That's just scientifically, ontologically more true. So you can't have a value system that is just based on non-reality. Your worldview has to be more true, which can then also be more ethical. So how do you and how do you ensure that your economic system is not creating perverse incentive that conditions the wrong things in the value system? And how do you ensure that your tech isn't producing psychosocial externalities, i.e. smartphones and Facebook ruining family attention and things like that, and attention span in general and um, hypernormal stimuli? So you've got to ensure that if the core is how do we develop culture, where then culture can be turned into governance, rule of law, et cetera, which can bind, guide, and direct the tech, then you have to have a society that's investing in that where you're ensuring also that the social systems and the infrastructure systems, the effect that they have on the culture is in the right direction. Now, I that's at such a fucking high topological level that it's still hard to get a vision of what does that look like? Do we have nation states? Do we have city states? Um, do we have skyscrapers? Do we have farmsteads? Do we have 8 billion people or half a billion people? So we could still get into all that, but that was the first level of me wanting to address the question of long-term future of civilization at a criteria level. What must the criteria be? Yeah, I love it. Yeah, and it's super helpful. And as you were describing that, you know, sort of like, the the worldview that people need to be able to inhabit and you know sort of like what it what it means to be a citizen a responsible citizen i just got this really deep i felt a deep sense of gratitude for my relationship with carol sanford specifically who's been such a leader in um creating experiences for people to evolve their epistemology ontology cosmology through deep kind of spiritual reflection but in the business world or in the the world of pu the public sector and like that like you can see and i have experienced an evolution of that and what it means to tar to sort of ev grow a capability and capacity to be taking kind of responsibility at a, at a scale you know it's sort of like what does it take for us 
to grow our capability as individuals to be a part of a society that works? And then what do we need to do in order to change that? And just to like ground that for listeners, you know, I and I've I've heard you and 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 Jordan um talking about this a little bit. Um recently in in a dialogue that you guys were having maybe with Jamie Wheel as well um and it just rung to me her work sort of like and I don't know if if you've been exposed to her or anybody else has but just you know that lineage of um very rigorous self-reflection and and commitment to engaging with regenerating the systems that we're embedded in whether that's the biosphere or the industry that we're working in or the the local town that we're a part of and just kind of like growing that capability and how essential that is, you know, and, and how that's not a tech thing. <laughs> that's a that's a commitment to growing agency and human capability um, and capacity. So, yeah, just just love that and kind of like weaving that into to um you know that's a that's a solid foundation that people could go and engage with um i'm i'm looking at the time here and i'm like I, i'm so hungry to get to the um you know to the next stage but it's as if as if it may never happen you know the the i feel like there's this elusive um you know world that Daniel holds in his heart <laughs> that may never, you know, appear in, uh, except for maybe around a campfire or something, you know, we may never get this recorded. So, um, I, <laughs> there's I some to that. I, I, really like <laughs> I obviously have no idea how the world is actually going to unfold, nor do I know what the right long-term systems look like in detail, but there's a lot more that I have a, thoughts on yeah that you have an image of you have a living that you're sourcing you're like sourcing a living image that's sort of yeah yeah totally so the future of economic system and the future of governance systems and you know a lot of things uh we could get into it more depth and i think it would be really fun and it also specifically food systems and water systems and things like that um and i would also really love to uh understand a lot more than we got to in this conversation about Jason's thoughts on those things, uh, but I know we have to wrap. And so I also realized that the, the conversation was a bit esoteric, a bit meandering and left more threads open than it closed. But um, I still enjoyed having the conversation with you guys. And uh, so thank you for engaging in it. Yeah, no, likewise. I'm super grateful for your time, Daniel, and yours, uh, Jason. And, you know, I'm totally down to keep keep digging in. Um, you know, if, if we can manage our um, mutually uh, you know, challenging schedules, it would be fun to do a little bit of a, a series dialogue on some of these, especially the future of food. I think that'd be really fun to dig into and talk about in more depth, but, you know, really all of it. Um, well, yeah, I'm super grateful. Maybe I'll just let each of you do a quick closing remark before we um, close down for the evening here. Jason, do you want to? Do you have any uh, thoughts, reflections, uh, any anything you want to leave the audience with as we close out? Well, I, I just want to thank you guys. I thought this was uh, stimulating for me. Yeah, I guess a couple closing thoughts. One, you know, I, I think what we're trying to do with Doomer Optimism is one, it's a recognition. So, like what you're talking about, Daniel, and all of these considerations. I'm glad that there's people out there that are that are doing this, and I, and you know I, I hope more 
orders of magnitude more people think in these terms uh, and their kind of responsibility for larger scale systems. Uh, I, I, but I also think that a lot of people aren't going to, to do that. And I think what we're trying to do with Doomer Optimism is give people a very kind of tangible way to rediscover value in their life and tangibility in their life, you know, by say starting a homestead, maybe that's helping you kick your internet addiction and it's helping you think more crucially about technology and energy and uh, loops in the biosphere. And because you're not an atomized agent, uh, perhaps you're, you know, engaged in culture building again, developing relationships. And because you're also on the internet some, you're you're still, you're not becoming, hopefully, that's this is my hope, not you're not becoming so inward focused that you know that you become, you know, either uncaring or ignorant of the larger responsibility that 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 you're a part of. And in political economy, uh, social structure, uh, I, I think that, well, you're 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 placing certain limits on yourself, or you're trying to by localizing, right? Instead of just buying the thing always on Amazon, which we all do, but in, you know, trying, you know, perhaps you could get it locally from a neighbor or in your county, or you could make it yourself, right? And so, and and there's an implicit kind of degrowth implication of that as well, because it's necessarily not as efficient. Uh, if you're not accounting for externalities, and so I, I, I like to think that the projects are complementary, um, but maybe they're working on different scales. And so I guess I'll I'll leave it there. Yeah, and I think if again I don't know the audience in your world well, but if there were people who felt apathetic and hopeless about the macro scale of the world, and their optimism came from decreasing the scale of like maybe I do have agency over my own life and maybe over my own local region more. And maybe there is something net positive I can do for the world by at least not being part of, or not contributing to the extractive world as much and maybe prototyping something, maybe creating some local resilience and prototyping something that would help prevent some of the cascading failures. I don't want to decrease people's um, motivation to do that. I think that if people are feeling motivated in that way, that is important and awesome. And all, you know, I would say is that like going from no agency to some agency, even if it's just the agency to make your own life better is a movement in the right direction and going from the agency to make your own life better to your family's life better. And then maybe a local community's better is a movement in the right direction. And to just keep that direction going as much as you can realizing that even if you stop getting most of your needs, your food and whatever met by global supply chains, you are still part of a world that independent of even caring for the other people and animals in other parts of the world, which you probably do, you're also directly affected by them or indirectly, but really affected by them. And to not get dysfunctionally bummed by what you can't do about it, but to care about it in ways that can motivate new insights and even if, let's say, you moved to get to produce a lot less waste and have much deeper, better relationships with your neighbors and, you know, produce much more of your own food and you start to realize that you can extend this to your larger community than just a few neighbors and you actually create some local resilience, the step from that to then mapping 
what were the things you thought would work that didn't? And what were the things that surprised you that really worked well? And putting that online so that other people that are inspired to do similarly can, everyone can be benefiting from what everybody learns and staying apprised of the macro issues enough that where you would have the ability to do something meaningful, you can. That's really all I would add to that focus. Yeah. And that's, and that's really, for me, at least that's kind of the, part of the explicit project is this idea of cosmolocal diffusion of innovation and mutual aid and knowledge sharing, you know, across scales in physically, you know, at a bioregional scale, but uh, memetically uh, at, at much larger scales. And so, yeah, uh, I think that's great advice. Um, and, and I think that's, that, that's definitely the direction that, you know, I, I'm trying to help, help, help guide it. Good. Love it. Yeah. Um, I, I apologize. I'm going to have to move us towards wrapping. I've just got to um, get, get the kiddos in, in bed here. So um, kind of coming back into the, the very grounded reality of my, uh, my life as a, as a householder. Yeah. And I'm, um, I'm amped that this first thread, I mean, I think we went a lot of different places, but that for my instinct that that conversation sort of like around embedding our instincts around the aesthetics and ethics of local action and, you know, the, the importance of relearning, you know, all of that stuff but also getting that living edge with the global coordination coordination issues and the sometimes mind-blowing both ethical and um, technological quandaries that we're facing. And just like, it's a very rich tension. And I really feel like holding that tension um, and allowing that to guide our creative agency and the questions that we're asking is just really, really fruitful. So I'm super grateful for both of you and the work, the thinking that both of you exhibit. So thanks so much for taking the time for the conversation. And I'd love to do it again sometime soon. Yeah. yeah thanks, guys. Thank you both. Take care. Bye, everybody. 